Welcome to In the Landscape, a podcast on all things landscape design and care related with your hosts, Kate and Charles Sadler. Welcome to a brand new episode of In the Landscape. We are here in studio, which I think we've revealed already is in our house at this moment. (laughs) We're still sheltering in place a little bit. Things are changing and and folks are invited to get out into parks and uh, wild spaces a little bit more here where we are down in Texas, but we're taking it somewhat easy and, and waiting to see how things go just a personal preference. And um, since we love our backyard and we love wild spaces anyway, it's not totally difficult to keep a distance. (laughs) For creative, uh, somewhat introverted folks, it's it's not that different. (laughs) Not that different. We are looking forward to getting back in the field and working. We've been as creative as we can be to try to do as much online work as we can for our landscape design business. So for those of you in the profession, um, we're certainly thinking of you and, you know, hoping you are finding ways to keep active in your trade. You know, with the moving projects forward, one thing we've, I guess, taken advantage of the contractors and the various people we partner with, we've worked with them remotely. So mm-hmm. given them photos, information, coach them on what, you know, needs to be moved forward, estimates, surveys. Yeah, so we've been able to sort of stage a lot and get it in position to hopefully move forward as trends continue to improve. You know, another thing that we are excited about and we're really getting rolling in a number of ways is our online course offering. Uh, You know, that's a part of the modern era in any event where, you know, you can pursue lifelong learning in a number of ways through online formats. And I like that we have a range of uh, we're, we're sort of tackling the range of landscape sciences. So we have mm-hmm. everything from, you know, great gardening information from a scientific perspective, you know, the biology and ecology of the backyard ecosystem, all of the the pruning and sort of plant care science that you bring to the table. So, you know, if you're interested, feel free to check it out. You can find it through our company website, which is kinggardeninc.com and online courses under the online courses tab. So, and then you're preparing to do some webinars with some other companies we partner with. Right. So, you know, we're, we're moving the ball forward a little bit. Again, it takes a little bit of creativity and we understand in some ways it gives us a chance to reach more people than we might have otherwise. So there's right. something nice about that. You know, one thing that I'm experiencing with pretty in-depth writing, reviewing, and then also like photo editing, you know, going over photos, we've is I'm getting a bigger picture on the kind of work we do, and to be able to co- compare and contrast, like the the seasons in the temperate climate, let's say in the Northeast U.S. versus the subtropics, like in the Southern U.S., how the the similarities, the overlaps, the time that you can plant, the time that you can prune, the act of writing is recording and then trying to convey information, and then you have to assess. Does this really line up? And then sometimes it doesn't. When you say one thing, well, this is sort of a contradiction. Oh, well, I need to revise. Like in the southern U.S., you can really plant, like in the winter, basically, it, which is so different. So like from about November or about March, roughly, is planting season in the southern U.S. Yeah, it's probably preferable. I mean, it gets hot quickly. <clears throat> it's cool. And so and you can transplant, you can prune. I mean, there, there could still be a frost. And so that is a marked contrast where in the, in the 
temper in the Northeast that I'm familiar with. I mean, things shut down. Things are frozen. There's snow. Plants are covered in snow and ice sometimes. So the planting season, it's in a temperate climate, like in the Northeast, let's say, it is pretty limited because you have the winter where it's very cold. There's a little window in the spring, really, from like April, the chance of snow usually goes away. But then by the end of June, it's getting quite hot. So there's so sort of seeing the seasons that way, it's enlightening. And I think it'll translate into a richness for these classes. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's interesting, the process of writing that that was, I think, one of our most popular episodes to date was the one that we put out on landscape writing. The mm-hmm. idea that if you want to sort of translate what you do in the garden into some sort of educational process, there's likely a market out there or, or an audience, I guess I should say. And that the act of writing, I mean, it's why, it's why we have to do it in, uh, you know, in these doctoral programs, like the one I'm in, because you have to organize your thoughts. You have to really consume. You have to be cognizant of the other writing and research that's out there. I always find if I have a writing block, it means I haven't taken in enough information uh. and processed my own thinking enough. And it, and it means I need to go back to the literature or or go back to the outline and think through how I want to structure things. So it really is quite good for organizing information. I mean, I did find that like recently with the Boxwood course, you know, getting into more detail with the module writing. I had the literature review and I had, but I had to really more or less take my outline, implement the literature in it, then step back. Okay, what's needed, what's not needed, then get more research to add. And then it flowed pretty quickly, but it's, it is, I mean, just like drawing, it's an iterative process of roughing it out. And then sometimes you take a break and then, okay, now what's more, what else is needed? And then what, in some cases, I had an excess of information for a certain subject. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's put that on hold. That'll, that'll come later with this other area of discussion. But I find with my students, for example, the writing process is initiated before enough research has been completed uh, <laughs> so. that's 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 by what i experienced you're right <laughs> these essays that are <laughs> that are hard to write that are sort of underformed, and and it's like no no spend a little more time with the material and when and then you sort of hit this critical mass of information and ideas and understanding and yes you must then sort them out and get them on the page but that's usually what i find my process to be anyway, and what I've observed in my students. So this episode wasn't intended to be about writing, but there's a little <laughs> bit of what's going on with us in our world. Again, you know, thinking through innovation and only because it's never a wrong time, I guess, to innovate and be forward thinking and right. adapt. It's an opportunity, really. Yeah, because we just, we don't know, especially in the landscape industry, something like climate change seems to be affecting the way we operate. and so. Mm-hmm. That, you know, flexibility and, and curiosity, by no means is it not difficult in terms of having an economy that is suffering right now. But, you know, you just sort of have to keep at it and, and try to figure out a way through. Um, and talking to like your peers, that's helpful too. And however that is on the phone, in yeah. person, social media. And sharing encouragement with each other. Because every right. time you reach out to one of our, our contractors in the field, there's excitement when the sense is that, you know, we're all still here. We're all still ready to work and, right. you know, trying to do so very, very safely. And that we but all affect each other too. Interest. As we move a design energy. forward, 
then the client has a need to complete a project. Yeah. And that, I mean, that when the economic times are tough, yeah, our pencil makes a mark. It's a, it, it hopefully fulfills a need by the client. That creates jobs. I mean, somebody's going to go to work for that as a, now when things are going, when the economy is very vibrant, it's not always perceptible. You think, mm-hmm. oh, we're doing a design. It's getting installed. You know, how much of a difference do I really make? And when things are really lean and we have a need that person who's doing the landscape construction, it's the difference between them sitting at home and then working. It's, it's quite humbling how integral and interconnected we all are. Yeah. So it's just a little kudos, a shout out to our other small business owners out there. Cause there are a lot of us, I think the landscape industry is mostly small business owners, family, mm-hmm. family owned nurseries to, you know, right. small Stone contractors yards. and yeah, we're sculptors. <laughs> it's all the government describes a small business as 500 employees or less. That's mm-hmm. what the IRS considers. So that's, I think it's about half the business. It's a, it's many of the businesses in the U.S. <laughs> and certainly many in our industry. So anyway, we're, we're thinking of you all, especially from that standpoint as well, and hope <laughs> a bright future ahead. That's right. So actually, today's topic was going to be on interest in the garden. And right. um, that's not quite the way. Well, we, we had quite a few ways of terming it. Another way of thinking about it might be decor in the landscape. Right. Uh, from ornaments to sculpture to pillows, which, you know, we talked about in the outdoor room episode. Mm-hmm. And I was mentioning that, like, my first step is to go buy pillows that have, like, the color and pattern that I like. And yet, our process is to do an inventory and get the survey and figure out what the program is and do a sunshade study. And, like, <laughs> at no point do we seem to ever get to you know, the baubles and doodads. And yet those really are a part of adding interest to the garden. As you mentioned, we have put down sort of the backbone of our of our garden with the woody shrubs and trees. We have a little bit of furniture that we've started to put into place. And so the hardscaping, the, so, like the circulation pattern, if there's steps, walks, built if there's constructed elements like walls, driveways, buildings, maybe there's a pergola. Well, and lighting is an important topic. So again, you know, if you think you haven't heard us discuss it, we probably have it on our agenda to get to. So lighting is just such a rich concept. We might do a whole episode on that. So, you know, that one video we just watched, that Spanish from Spain designer, is it Caruncho? I think is his last name. He has a whole, so he's a landscape architect, maybe an architect too. Beautiful. Monty Don did a visit with him. If our listeners can probably tell we're Monty Don fans at this point. <laughs> we're watching a lot of back who issues. Who isn't who's interested in gardens? But you know And so this designer you know, we're not alone. He has sort of a wing of his company, which is lighting. And he's beautiful. It looks like it's a copper type of a light. I think he's done some work in, in the French landscape, maybe parks, maybe private too. So so some of the designers that we follow. The one French one that I'm so fond of, Louis Binoc, he has a line of furniture, mm-hmm. which is through a furniture company. And so these designers, that creativity can be manifested in an element in the garden that adds, adds richness, whether you're sitting in it or not. It's something which you could be more or less in garden decor, something of such interest and fascination. Well, and I suppose some of those items might be more in the average person's price range. I mean, I doubt those benches are, but um, but I would imagine that maybe there are some 
adaptations to the design line that then are more accessible. I mean, we see that in clothing all the time. Right. You know? Well, like um, like in the fashion, there'd be the couture collection. And so that trickles down. And maybe it's like that fabric or that color is eventually comes to where the average person like myself would partake of that. Right. It, yeah, exactly. A similar idea. So here we are talking about garden decor, and there's a lot of different opportunities to express your style in this way. So of course, plants are going to dictate to a certain extent what they will and won't do. Mm -hmm. Um, And of course, our philosophy is all about aligning our goals with the plants. And so, you know, that that may mean that you, you are not able to get the size or the species that you're interested in, but then the ornaments are entirely up to you. So what are some elements that you would think of once you're ready to kind of ornament the landscape? Well, I guess it, it goes back to the program and the circulation and the layout. So if you're, imagine you're looking at a bird's eye view of a landscape, like a plan, maybe there's an access already where you exit a building and then there's a gathering space. So we've talked about visual cues before. So maybe there are two evergreen shrubs that mark a path that gives you a cue. Okay, this is, this is a, a way to proceed. So the decor and the ornaments are a layer even on top of that. So there's maybe there's a beautiful handmade pollinator house, like you see for bees, where it's bamboo and, and other elements. So maybe when when you're turning that corner, where there's the two shrubs that are marking the path, maybe halfway down that path, there's an ornament. And it's, oh, what's this? this is interesting. So it adds a level of richness. In the landscape psychology research, they use the term fascination quite a bit. So it's something that captures your attention. So the, the British sculptor who makes many garden ornaments, David Harbour, which, so he's in the Chelsea Flower Show often. His sculptures I've seen in, in gardens in the U.S. There's often a reflective quality, you know, where it's metal often. And sometimes there's a contrast. Part of it's reflective and part of it's not. So elements that capture your attention. I mean, it's something flashy you know <laughs> which might go back like goes back to our primal you know something that's that shiny catches your attention so, <laughs> we're just a bunch of magpies over here that's right uh-huh. make our little collection so the the key component so there's picking something that does have wonder and interest captures your attention it could be bird feed or bird bath something of interest the placement of it is important because it's if you were driving on the road, there's signs that direct you. You get on the highway, you get off the highway. You know, it's those signs are it's saying you're gonna stay on the highway, it's safe, you're gonna exit, it's gonna be safe. So these ornaments are gonna be basically steering you. So that's very important to consider. If there was a let's say like a swampy part of a of the backyard and there's an ornament on the other side of that, it wouldn't make sense to encourage someone to go through a swampy section. So they have to sort of think think through, but they can sort of support the program, let's say there's a long walk to that back gathering space, there could be ornaments along the way, which would help support that program of traveling from one part of the property to the other. I mean, I certainly think, and (laughs) this may come as no surprise to some of our listeners, but one of my favorite parts of a garden nursery, while you and my mother are out looking at the plants, I'm usually headed toward the little I think of it as a gift shop, but it's sort of like the ornament section. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Correct. You know, where the wind chimes and the little fairy gardens can be found. You know, I think there's certainly a potential to overdo that. You know, you can kind of 
careering off into kitsch. <laughs> but if that's your, you know, that can actually be done really cleverly if that's your, if that's your thing. Pink flamingos and, and all. But I do think that this is the area that a lot of non-gardeners can relate to. And so maybe mm-hmm. if you have someone with the green thumb in the family and you want to get out there and participate, but you don't really want to be the one digging in the dirt, <laughs> you know, maybe this is your domain. And I, I also think that the, the areas that I find lacking often, especially in this landscape, is we have big houses with big blank walls. I mean, lots of windows, actually, which is really nice when you're inside and, and getting the light and the view of the garden. But a lot of fencing, you know, mm-hmm. and, and we're definitely planting hedges to kind of mask some of the fencing. But they're just these areas like over by the, you know, air conditioning unit or whatever that really lend themselves to those you know, wall-based planters or wall-based fountains. And, you know, mm-hmm. there's a lot of room, I think, for adding ornaments to that. What's your, but that doesn't, that's not really wayfinding. So what would you consider that? What's coming to mind, it could create an axial relationship. So when you exit our back porch and you turn to the right and there's a tree, there's now a, veg- a vegetable raised bed. There's the, the air handlers, the air conditioning. So, your eye is, there's plants around the air conditioner. So that softens it a little. If there was, let's say, a sculpture on the fence, a, a sculptural element, or it could be a bird bath, that would create an axial relationship. So it's more or less you're drawing a line to an element that just like a magician, in the magician's right hand, he's doing something. But in the left hand, there's something very shiny that's moving. You're going to focus on on that shiny thing that's moving, and you're going to forget what's happening in the, in the other hand. So it's with good design. People often they want to put up a giant wall, hide something, giant hedges, and I'll say it's generally not needed if what you're doing in that left hand is so interesting. The obscuring the other element doesn't need to be that major. That it's it's surprising that it's by having this giant concealment, putting up a big fence or a wall to hide something like a garbage area or air handlers that can actually draw your attention. So having something so like by the, our air handlers, that'd be a spot maybe for a bird bath or a sculptural element could add quite a bit of interest. It will pull you over there. It'll distract you. And it's, it, it's a pretty minor intervention. It's not this major inter- intervention, it's, which is generally not really needed. Well, that's a good design principle. So you can, do more with disguising by diverting attention rather than hiding. So, right. And then it's fun to think about how these topics, and we're almost coming up on a year of episodes, actually, mm-hmm. um, to think about how these topics overlap with um, some of the other episodes, because I was thinking of a birdbath, like the traditional one with the stand and the dish. And then I was thinking about our son. <laughs> and I was like, wait a minute, designing for children, designing for children. If it's hung high on the fence, it might survive. If it's something that's supposed to be stable on the ground and has like interest, it's going to be, you know, hanging <laughs> from it within seconds. So I've started um, to think that through. I mean, that's yeah. like, what are the constraints? A traditional bird bath, there's a pedestal and then there's a basin. Mm-hmm. And they're, it's often, let's say, cast stone, concrete or metal. It's very tippy. Now, yeah. now an adult like is not going to bump into it, but a child. So there could be a ground bird, a bath, bird bath that's closer to the ground. But that's would 
like knowing your client. Mm-hmm. And so one of our clients is a is a toddler. <laughs> that makes sure we it's safe. also have a cat, and so having the low bird bath might also be dangerous. I mean, she's oh. getting on to senior citizenship, and she, you know, she hasn't caught a bird in our backyard yet. But I don't want to take that chance. So you know, maybe maybe a bird feeder higher up, or you know, something mm-hmm. something sensible. So, but you do have to think it through, and I, I and I think that is sometimes. It's certainly the mistake I would have a tendency to wander into where I'm like, I want this thing. I need this thing. I'm going to order it from, you know, online and then I'm going to stick it in the yard. Mm -hmm. And then for whatever reason, it doesn't work or I don't use it (laughs) the way I thought, which is one of the reasons we we kind of started small with our vegetable garden. So what occurs to me to sort of dissect that those design principles we were talking through, the scale of the ornament is important, that it's big enough to have impact but that it's not overwhelming. And so what's done, when I see other designers do this, I've done this with cardboard, you can create like a silhouette of what size that urn would be and just stick that in the landscape. Or if it's going to be an ornament that's going to be hung on a fence, you could do the same thing. Say, okay, this is, it's a 16 inch reflective element that would go on the fence. Let's try that out. Is that big enough? Like, oh, that looks about right. Or boy, from the house, it looks silly. It's like, not big enough or it's too big uh so the scale the how it's since it's outdoors is it suitable to the environment is it going to freeze like a beautiful terracotta element a pot or a sculpture in a temperate climate where, where it freezes it's not safe it's not frost proof do you suggest going with items that are in keeping with the plants that you've chosen for example we have a lot of native texas and mexico plants and i like that mexican colorful mexican pottery mm-hmm. so we kind of think that that might be the the direction we go with some of our decor so what would you or or i mean is there a way to kind of artfully do a contrast right there definitely can be a contrast it could be french country meets mexico so that's be intentional you could experiment try it out there's probably examples of it, or there'd be a little more general category, like like a casual, little more informal garden style that would maybe lend itself to more eclectic. If it's, I mean, some of the properties I work on are quite formal. And so when there's an outside element, it can work, but the other elements, like let's say there's a sculpture that's really out there, like a very contemporary sculpture, but it's a but the home is quite classical. The plantings are classical. You wouldn't want other elements to compete with it. So there's that modern sculpture or modern element. Let's say the plantings or the elements should be pretty simple, low key. So they're not competing with having plants that grab your attention and sculptures that grab your attention. And then there's in the furniture grabs your attention. It tends to be like cluttered, busy. Even if you're going for an eclectic look, like in music, they're called rests. So a rest in a landscape would often be a hedge or a grouping where it's there's some level of simplicity. So you can enjoy that wonder, that shiny object, a reflective element. And then we have lots of shrub palms. And so those are they're throughout the yard. And there's a couple species. And so your eyes can rest on those, more or less. Now, we did an episode on sensory gardens, and we talked a lot about the kinds of plants that you would have in sensory gardens. In fact, we even got a, a mention on Twitter because <laughs> right. our listeners had planted lamb's ear, which I think oh, we mentioned cool. in the episode, and that's one of those soft 
soft to the touch um, <laughs> plants. But you can obviously, of course, introduce a lot of sensory interest with the kinetic elements and auditory elements that might be ornamental. So what, what might some of those be? And I would imagine, again, you want to maybe add judiciously one at a time and kind of see how things come together in the landscape. Just because, as you mentioned, you know, you can have one wind chime. If you have competing wind chimes, it might be too much. It might be wonderful. So right. you, know, you can take your time to kind of figure that out. Is there anything you like in particular in terms of kinetic elements yeah, and can you match i'm sorry plants and sculpture and have motion in both or is that too busy generally they could work together like that professor at syracuse would say what's the most noble so there's a line of, of these kinetic it's like a wind spinner i think is it sort of common name so it's it might look like a sunflower it's a it's metal sometimes it's copper aluminum it's derived from an, an organic form and there's multiple more or less like plates that would spin independently, like a sunflower type sculpture. So a plant like that, there's quite a bit of detail to it. So if I was to plant around that, let's say people may know Black-Eyed Susan. So a plant like that sort of steals the show. So that might compete with a garden ornament. Let's say a plant that's very showy, that's like brown and yellow basically, or black and yellow, where let's say there's the pink muley grass. It's like a, like a, a Gulf Coast native grass, which it turns pink in the fall. So a plant like that, there's still a lot of interest. It's a little more subdued. And the sculptural element, that wind spinner, would be the most noble. So that's you know this, this insertion, like the cherry on top of the ice cream sundae. And then the whipped cream, let's say, is white, the cherry's red. If the whipped cream was red, the cherry was red, it gets a little confusing. So having yeah, legibility, I think, was the word you used in one episode. That that's oh, almost the design right. principle. So the ability for the eye to distinguish what the intention is. And, you know, you may have had the intention, but can the eye then pick it up? Yeah, very good point. Question. So you can build you can build the landscape in all different ways. I mean, there's some designers or homeowners. I mean, I guess it's like irregardless of who's doing it, where a garden ornament if it was really carefully placed, that could be placed first, possibly. I often generally build gradually where the, like the woody elements, you have to know like where the paths and the gathering areas are first. And then the shrubs and the trees are more or less supporting that. And then once we know that, like where your eye is going to be, you're going to be seated. Like we have that arc of Adirondack chairs. We're going to be seated there. There's areas which, which come to mind, well, that'd be nice to have an ornament there. And so I guess that's my process. It's it gradually builds, and then the information comes to you as you need it. We got a place to gather. Let's have something of interest. And so, like our Adirondack chairs are more or less facing those air handlers, and so the ferns obscure it a little bit. But if there was an ornament there, then that would serve two purposes. When you're exiting the patio, you'd see it. When you're seated, you'd see it. And so, taking a, a stake or other marker could help in that design process. Placing it, okay, I know. Is this about the right spot? Then looking at it from different angles. It sounds like we need to go shopping. <laughs> <laughs> sounds fun. <laughs> <laughs> We're trying to be very careful right now. Now, have you ever had a client who had an ornament, maybe even a large sculpture or a statue, and that is what they wanted to design the, the uh, landscape around? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that happens all the time. And sometimes these amazing, you know, 
uh, world famous sculptures, which is that's quite exciting to see something. The school I went to, Rochester Institute, Institute of Technology, there were some world class sculptors that worked there. The uh, the School of American Crafts. There's uh, Wendell Castle was one. Albert Paley was another, and just amazing. But they both worked quite a bit in metal. Uh, Albert Paley created decorative gates. He's he still does. It could be residential or civic scale, even bridges, very ornamented. And Wendell Castle, who passed away pretty recently, he was an innovator in more or less, I think it's called the art furniture movement. So it's a crafted element. It could be a chair, a table that is this abstraction. It's halfway between sculpture, but it's still functional. You could still sit in it. And so some of his elements like that would be an example. It's iconic. It's sculptural. It, but you can also sit in it, and that helps pull you into the landscape. You see that it adds some wonder. There's light and shade. Is it's often an organic inspired form, so it it lends itself to a landscape. Where Alexander Calder is another at Storm King Sculpture Park in the Hudson Valley. There are some by him and other. Mark de Chirico is also that you know quite warm orangish red and so elements like that at storm king as an example the planting palette is very simple they they've created meadows so there's tall grasses and there's mown paths there's alleys of sugar maples and that's pretty much it and then there's the surrounding hillsides so the sculptures there are are like world class icon very iconic there's nothing that competes with them but the the scale of the landscape of, you know, dozens and dozens of sugar maples that go f- create these axial relationship that are thousands of yards long. And then the ground plane, there was a period where they, it was all mown grass. And then like in the last decade or so, I believe, they realized that's not very ecologically friendly. So they had, they converted them to meadows. And so that can really stand up to the sculpture is that grass is moving. The sculptures are the star of the show, though, and the landscape supports that it doesn't compete with it. And the landscape is seasonal. So in the spring, that that fresh meadow is going to be green. There'll be some wildflowers. In the off-season, there's the sugar maples are bare, but they're architectural. Sort of like the high season there would be in the fall, where the sugar maples have the fall color. It's still harmonious. It's a native plant, so it's harmonious with the surrounding landscape. It's in support of the sculpture. It's not, even then, it's still not competing with the sculpture. That's quite a good example. And, and that, those same examples and principles could be utilized in a smaller landscape, in, in your own landscape. Great. Is there anything else you wanted to cover on this topic of ornaments in the landscape, or sort of decor in the landscape? We didn't, I guess we didn't really get into fabrics and, and things like that, mostly sort of static elements that you might hang or stand in the landscape, but but some good design principles there. So anything else we should be mindful? Well, like another favorite is the Wave Hill chair. So the Wave Hill, we talked about a botanic garden in the Bronx and Riverdale. So it's, it overlooks the Hudson River and the Palisades. And so, I mean, that, that happens throughout the world, that there's an iconic element that's of the place. That chair is used in other gardens. There's a garden further up the Hudson in this free. And so they prominently utilize that chair. So an, an element like that, it's recognizable. It draws your attention. It, it creates this visual language. Even people that don't know it came from Wave Hill would probably recognize, oh, I think I've seen that before. That's interesting. Or 
the Adirondack chair is so iconic. Everybody knows, like throughout North America, it's, you know, it's very well known. Well, and that might be just as much as I think incorporating sort of the native vernacular can be fun. There is sometimes a sense of homesickness when you've moved. And so having, mm-hmm. you know, the, even if you can't support the plants that you're used to because the climate has changed, you might be able to introduce an element like that that is, you know, structural <laughs> um, and, and still is reminiscent of a place. That's a great point, right? Or a place you've been to, because what, you know, we love those containers from the French gardens that, the yeah, like Versailles, uh, Versailles boxes. Yes, yeah. Which I don't. <laughs> we can't afford to have those in our yard. But if you had some of those holding your citrus trees, I mean, it would be instantly evocative of, of this other, you know, this other place that we visited and loved. So that idea that you know that's maybe one way to to really ground your space in a sense that's familiar or or different. <laughs> right. What you're going Compare and contrast. Yeah, yeah. Because the plants sometimes tell us what they will and won't do. Okay, anything else that we should cover before we wrap up this episode? Well, let's see. Our eight design principle for the week. Negative space. So that's if you have a dark circle on the page, let's say. So the circle would be the positive space, and then the negative space would be the area around that. So with a garden ornament, that's applicable. So there's the ornament itself, whatever that may be. It's, it's a temperature gauge on your on the back of your house. It's like decorative. It's brass or an outdoor clock or a sundial. So there's the object itself, the bird bath. There's the silhouette that it creates, the shape it creates. Maybe there's a lawn area around the ornament. That would be the negative space. And so by seeing silhouette or the negative space, that can also create quite a bit of interest. And it should be thought out. I mean, there's certain things from a distance it might read. Like that happens all the time where there'll be a chair and, and someone puts their jacket over it. So from a distance, it, that could look like there's somebody sitting there, which you may or may not want. So the negative space on properties that we work on, the lawn area is often an afterthought. It's just a default area where there's not planting beds. So carefully considering the shape of the lawn, that could be considered the negative space, adding curves or long straight lines where you're sort of more or less activating the negative space, which adds beauty, interest. It's quite a simple tool, too. Great. All right. So that's another full episode of In the Landscape. Thank you for joining us this week. We hope we came up with a few ideas that you might be able to implement yourself and enjoy your space even more. We'd love to get your ideas. We'd love to get your pictures. We're so appreciative of feedback and um, engagement on our social media posts. So do listen for that information at the end of the episode. Um, subscribe, rate, review. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and come on over and check out a class if you're interested. Uh, we'd love to get feedback there as well. So please do join us next week. Until then, we hope you get out in the landscape one way or another in your own space and time. Thank you. Thank you. In the Landscape is brought to you by King Garden, a full-service landscape design, care, and education company. Enjoying what you hear on our podcast? We encourage you to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen. We'd love to hear from you. So drop us a line at connect at kinggardeninc.com. We welcome show ideas, gardening and design questions, and always corrections. We travel all over North America giving garden talks and leading trainings. 
Check us out at kinggardeninc.com for our speaking details. And also take a look at our online course offerings for more in-depth explorations of topics covered on our show.